of you who have been coming to IMS for a while, or at least a few times, might have gathered that Alexis and I kind of broke form and have decided to try a few things differently. And we were saying how fantastic it's been. (laughs) It's been really nice. Um, A lot of it has to do with all that you have brought. And this afternoon was really wonderful for me. Um, it was a great experience. And, uh, and, and the way that we have decided to give talks or actually not give talks is also very different. <laughs> um, for those who haven't been here, typically a teacher would you know, sit up here for about 45 minutes to an hour um, sharing beautiful dharma. And we're enjoying more dialogue, more interaction, more relational ways of talking about the Dharma and sharing the Dharma. And that includes you. And one of the things we have been finding very rich is hearing from you. So we want to spend most of this time, the bulk of the time, um, having more questions because as some of you who've wrote some really beautiful and important questions maybe didn't get answered, um, some questions are unanswerable by another person. Um, so, but we will do some Q&A that we think might be helpful. But going back to this idea of the unanswerable questions, um, You know, one of the things about this practice is it truly is a cultivation. It truly is something that takes time and has a lot of personal discovery in it. Um, This is not, we're so used to, you know, this is a fast food nation. This is, we want things and we want them now. (laughs) And this practice doesn't really offer that. And I'm not saying that as a bummer and a downer, um, but I'm saying it as encouragement to continue. So if you have these questions, which we all do, I mean, I always found when I would go into a a meeting with a teacher, right before I was going to raise my hand, the answer would come. And I was like, oh. (laughs) Or the the answer was, there's no answer yet. You know, I just don't know yet. And so there's this beautiful uncovering that we all get to do in this practice called the Dharma. And I know for us, I mean, we've made lifelong commitments to it. And one of my favorite things is the discovery you know, the unfolding of something that arises. I, I said the word ehiposiko, I think, last night, seeing for myself versus somebody else telling me. And, you know, we're living in a time, and especially in a country, where there's, we see so much, and Margot pointed to greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, it's like the world sort of runs on a lot of greed, aversion, or hatred and delusion. And so all of us have decided to do this practice, which is sometimes called against the stream. You know, we are those little, what are they, salamanders? Who, what are they that swim, swim upstream? Salmon? Salmon. There's a salamander. Oh, you had a salamander in your story? Oh, that was a gecko. 
You know what I mean. <laughs> Aren't salmon in the ocean? They're in streams. They're freshwater fish. Okay. Both. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> anyway, we're, we're whatever it is. And so, like, even that visual, that image, right, of, like, swimming against the stream means we're doing something really radical. And so when, when, when hatred arises or anger arises, it's like, yeah, absolutely, because we stand for something that most, most people may not stand for. There's a, a, I'm not sure what the percentage was, but when once the Buddha woke up, apparently the Brahmins came and said, you must teach, you must teach. I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing. <laughs> you must teach. <laughs> and um, the Buddha said, no, I, I won't teach. I don't, I don't want to teach this. And then there was the insistent, you must teach. And then, I don't want to teach this. And he said, I don't want to teach it because... S- there are too few people that don't have dust in their eyes. It was sort of saying, like, people aren't going to get this. It goes against what most people think that they're striving for. So one of my teachers calls us the one percenters. Like, we're the true one percenters. We're the ones that, you know, have, have decided that we don't have dust in our eyes, that we can see the truth of you know, greed, hatred, and delusion. We can see the truth of dukkha, nicca, anatta, which is impermanence, this idea of a fixed and permanent self and suffering. And so we've taken something on, you know, it's like we're in the club now. Of And, I, and again, Margot, it's such a beautiful talk you gave, you know, princess, we're the princess Leia's. And, you know, we have committed to, or I'm not, we have committed to, and I, you know, this practice is one that takes courage and willingness to um, do something that's different. Ajahn Chah says there are two kinds of suffering. There's a suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And so what that's pointing to is, yeah, it, this isn't necessarily easy, but it's worth it. So this is just sort of a, an encouragement talk. Um, you know, this idea of there, there, there are two types of faith, and one is that idea of blind faith, which a lot of um, other traditions maybe point to just believing just because somebody said so. And there's something called bright faith or verified faith. And that's believing in something and continuing to do it because you've seen, even if incremental, even if small, you've seen the benefits. And it's like, oh yeah, okay, okay, that happened. I'm going to, I'll keep going, I'll keep going, I'll keep going. I don't know to you. Sort of what you're sharing to me brings up um, uh, 
Think like what what life feels like without a without a compass. And before I began practicing the Dharma, I mean, I think we don't really have a way of determining what is really onward leading, what leads onward to greater kindness, greater meaning, greater connection. How do we meet our life so that this life becomes one filled with with meaning, with integrity? I mean, we all know people that have their own natural conditions. Maybe some of you have that. It's like these qualities are so immense. It's like sometimes we're born with some of these qualities. And yet they're also not just naturally unfolding. And one way of describing a Buddha is, is a Buddha is a person that discovers this path. So this is described as an ancient path that often gets covered over. Whether or not cosmologically that's the way the universe works, but the lawfulness of the Dhamma, that there's cause and effect, reality, that that is always happening. So when we look into our own mind and heart and we see there is some cause behind suffering or there is some cause behind joy, behind care. So it's not random in that sense. Things are very lawful. And that gives us a sense of a path. Well, if I cultivate these qualities, naturally those will get stronger and there's a path that we move down. And we don't move down that path if we're not that little salamander or salmon (laughs) doing its best to go up current, it's going to drift along with the habits and whatever habits of our culture or family or society happen to be there. You know, which way is the wind blowing? But when we're given a path, we actually get to choose. You know, we get to choose and cultivate. And it really is up, it's available to anyone that puts in the time, the investment into this cultivation. And I remember I was sitting where you are at one point and just hearing, and I was beginning to try to understand what what the stock market is and what is a stock, you know. And a guy had like, it was total... Economics for me was like, that's, don't look at it because it's really scary and anything, money and finance. So a little bit, a little bit, economics, a little bit my parents' background. So I was like, that's not what I want to do at all. But when I came back from being in, uh, kind of having looked at my mind, some things that were really scary were a little bit less scary. I was like, okay, I can open my bank statements and see what's there. And that's actually a good idea to know (laughs) your finances. (laughs) So I was like, Meditation works. You can actually look at scary stuff. <laughs> so, I totally forgot what I was going to say. Let's see. <laughs> the current, yeah, the stock market. Oh, right, and I was sitting where you were. And <laughs> so I was beginning to think about investments. And then one of the teachers up here said, this is the best investment you can possibly make. And... I know that to be true because what it is that we're seeking and whatever kind of investment we're trying to make, this is the direct path towards the alleviating of suffering, confusion, creating harm, and ending harm in our world. You know, so we are all kind of, we have this very tender heart and we want to be full, we want to be connected and the illusions that separate us actually are very painful. 
So one of the things we've been talking about, you know, is the identities that we build up around color of skin or economic classes, gender, how we're gendered. And when our Sangha, for example, isn't whole and complete, we are not complete. Part of our mind is, is apart, separate. So what is it that allows us to kind of reconnect, become whole again, and have the life really meaningful and full? And that's, that's up to us, that's sort of a journey. Do we take that on? And just one last thing, I was, I was also moved by Margot's uh, reflections and even just, I think she said something like in the last three days, like 600,000 people have passed away and a million have been born, something like that. So life is just always ongoing. And how quickly do three days pass by in our life? I mean, we've been here now at two full days. And look at how we spent the time, right, so wisely. And that there is some more settledness, I'm sure, in your mind and heart. You might not notice it, but it's still something there. And if you just continue that, this is the possibility, right, that we're moving in. It's not, it's not insignificant. So these little, you know, moments of transformation, as we build them, they become truly powerful. You know, so how many times have been a hundred people sitting in this room doing what we did week after week? And in the world right now, so many beings giving themselves to this development, to this cultivation. So that's what came to mind. And every time I say thank you for your practice, I really do mean it because I've, I've gone through a lot of uh, challenges in the practice and it takes uh, courage to keep going. And when I see other people practicing, it inspires my mind and I get more confident. And, and then when I hear the amazing wisdom that, that you are cultivating also, you know, it's like, yeah, wow, it's amazing what we have. And to me, what's remarkable is the, is the range of directions a human mind can go. So big. So we have this potential for awakening. It is extraordinary. And then, of course, we have the potential for harm, confusion, hatred. Right? And what are we, what are we feeding? Which way are we going? So let's open up to them. Yeah. What's on your mind? And we'll, again, we'll tr- see if we can start with someone that hasn't, and we'll, we'll circle back to you if we, if we can. Please. Yeah, yeah, the mic would be great. Thank you. <laughs> yes, please wait for the mic. There's, Is that okay? We have a. Um, Neural pathways came to mind when you were talking about the salmon or salamanders, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but um, allowing the space just to be and not to rush is just so beautiful. And I know our culture doesn't value dreams. So I'm curious. It just popped up because I had such a credible dream time, um, profound dream time. And what did the Buddha say about dream dreaming, and um, where's the space for that to include that in the practice? Yeah. Do you know? <laughs> Is my mic on? 
I don't know how much I use the word dream, but in some ways the nature of illusion and delusion is operating all the time. So to what degree are we dreaming this moment and how accurately are we seeing it is one level of the dream mind. Then as, as we of course go into sleep and then we know the mind is creating images and things that are there in the sleep world. For me, you know, I, I don't know any particular teachings around that, but in terms of my, um, what I've talked with my own uh, teacher, a monk in Burma, he, he said when the mind isn't suppressing in the dream world, the mind doesn't have the capacity necessarily to suppress, so just stuff that naturally gets to come up. Right, so it can be just an interesting recognition of what's there, but also maybe not doing too much then evaluation of it and more being with, again, as if, what am I feeling? What's here? So it can be useful in that way, but a lot of what we're doing is not to reinterpret because that's just what lens do I happen to put on? What kind of scientific model am I wearing? What which which angle am I looking at it? And that always, in a way, brings up a bias. Of, but the immediacy of the experience is more about what, what is this? What am I feeling? And there's so much that is, you know, that's there. And I think oftentimes dreams are very powerful on retreat because so much mindfulness during the day first makes the mind clear, but it also can temporarily keep at bay some of the things that we would say, this is, this doesn't belong. Things, you know, sexual energy or anger or whatever it would be. And then they come up in the mind. They, it's like, oh my God, why am I dream so crazy? Right? And it was very, oftentimes when we're mindful, there can be a subtle inadvertent suppression of natural energies, things that are natural to the mind. So the dream world in a way is a little bit like a, from the way I relate to it is like, just pressure cooker releasing. A little bit like when the mind drifts into thought, if you've been holding yourself really tightly in meditation, when the mind drifts, sometimes you actually come back and you're more peaceful if you're not judging the thinking mind. It's a little bit like, oh, the mind just kind of drifted off and you come back and you're, see actually how you do feel rather than judging the thinking mind. Because oftentimes the mind just says, oh, this is now resting again. I'm not <coughs> controlling the mind. And that's the same kind of in the dream, the dream state. Yeah. So the last time I was at a retreat at IMS was five years ago when I sat a retreat with Gina Sharp. And it was just before I conceived and gave birth to my daughter at um, 43. And um, I had spent a lot of time in my life trying to manifest that, and it wasn't happening for me. And a teacher at New York Zen Center said to me finally, and I finally heard it, the Buddha says, shine the light on yourself. Like, Candace, what do you really want? And I did a lot of hard work to make that happen. And it's been so beautiful to have manifested that. So the question that's coming to me today is how does one, um, and going forward, how does one note the difference between 
like grasping and longing and I really want this versus like contentment and accepting life as it is and um, like really trying to manifest your dreams, place a lot of attention on it, work really hard and just accept like these things aren't coming to me. And I, I just want to note that I remembered at that retreat, I would walk the stairs up to the bathroom, and you, you know that big uh, thing that says, um, let go of all of your expectations, and in that way, everything will open up to you. And I remembered that retreat, I just kept looking at that sign. I had just did one round of insemination, it didn't work, and I'm like, I have enough money for one more round. Like, how can I have no expectations that I'm going to manifest this? And I, I did. But I had to work so hard. So I guess right now I'm, you know, I'm so grateful. But I have all these other dreams I want to manifest in life, and I'm just curious how you guys see that. that. Congratulations! <laughs> Beautiful. You know, I think that desire sort of gotten a bad rap um, in ways, and maybe even misunderstood. Because there are, are lots and lots of really, you know, we use the word wholesome desires that are totally beautiful and okay and forward-leading. And we should all want, you know, want what we want. Um, so, so I just want to encourage you to, if you, we can want things. Like, that's okay to want things. Um, the difference between really wanting something that is going to help our lives grow and flourish and it includes friendships, it includes our spiritual path, it includes like wanting a roof over our heads and food and security, right? Like that seems like what we all deserve. So that's okay. And then we've just kind of overdone it. You know, like it's the gluttony, it's the hedonism, it's that, you know, that thing, the hungry ghost that's just never satisfied, you know, is, is really what we're looking at in terms of greed and clinging and how much suffering is it causing when we don't get it, right? Now, sometimes, you know, one of the first, um, one of the things that is, uh, often pointed to around the first noble truth of dukkha is getting what you don't want and not getting what you do want. Right? Old age, sickness, and death. Getting what you don't want, not getting what you do want. And so, and when we cling to those ideas is when we suffer. So I think that's what you're sort of pointing to, right? So there is this really important and valued balance between um, at what point do I let go? And at what point is it totally okay to want something? You know, and, the, and that's a question we have to really kind of ask ourselves because, um, you know, it's, it's funny. I, sometimes our friends can see it before we can, you know, or that's why it's really important to have, I think, spiritual friends or other friends who are on the path or a teacher or someone like that that can actually say to you, you know what, you've been trying this (laughs) for 10 years and all I see is that you're unhappy. 
you know, like, can we try something else? Um, I used to be a, a, before I was this and before I was something else, I was an agent for actors. And I just, you know, one of the things that when you're saying that, that is playing for me are, are the people that are, you know, they're waiters at 65 and they're like, I still want to be an actor, but they don't want to be a character actor. They want to be the leading man. <laughs> and so it's sort of, you know, there's, there's a balance to what actually feeds us and is good for us. Um, and then what's totally okay to want. I don't know if that's helpful. Um, thanks. Hello. I I went for a walk after the uh, manager talk, and I had a thought that this retreat seemed to be like a continuous soul retrieval thing. It seems like all the things that are a soup in the head that are continually circling around, they're like the energies that when you claim it, it becomes yours and it transforms and it kind of, and then it can sort of not to be worried about or, or claimed or something happens to that. So it, even though it seems like it's a just, so many nuisances in your head that are going on and on and on. It's a cooking process and something is um, coming out of it in a big picture. But I I just wanted to share that thought. And the other question I have, which is a burning question to Johanna, how do you teach these principles to the kids? I have a continuous struggle with my children that insist that they're Americans and they want to have junk food and TV and they want nothing to do with anything. I want to tell them, teach them, talk to them, show them, take them. And <laughs> Do you have any wisdom to share? Because I heard very clearly you have 18 and 21-year-old and I'm, I'm, I'm just dying to hear what you have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, my kids are salamanders. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> they are, actually. Um, you know, the first thing that came to my mind when you said that was modeling. You know, I cannot tell them anything, but I can show them everything. And so um, I've watched them watch me. And... Um, you know, when I talked about holding ourselves close, I hold them close. Um, I mean, they're, the, they're sort of the perfect external practice, you know, because we watch things arise, we meet it, we hold it, we see it. You know, I can only speak for myself. I did like hardcore attachment parenting, you know, just like really, and I've really let them be who they are and at their fullest. Um, I really tried to never um, squash their creativity or anything. When my son wanted to wear a bikini to school, he wore a bikini to school. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> There's something about 
You know, it might be having this practice embedded in me that allows me to, um, yeah, let them be who they need to be versus who I need them to be. Um, So the junk food part, I just didn't have it in the house. Like, it just wasn't available. (laughs) And if they happened to eat it outside, then they did. We didn't have a TV. Um, I got rid of our TV actually on 9-11. Um, Because it wasn't a visual that my kids needed. You know, it really messed with them. Um, So got rid of the TV, don't have the junk food. And then whatever happens out there, they always had a refuge to come home to. I remember making a promise to myself that life was really hard out there and it was never going to be hard in here. This is where it was going to be beautiful. This is where it was going to be safe. This is where it was going to be kind. Um... And that was my commitment to them, to me. Um, so home is a refuge, and they don't have to fight in our home. You know, they do that out there. I hope that was helpful. <laughs> my totally expert advice. <laughs> no, because this is what I was going to say: was eat junk food with them once in a while. <laughs> but then you might end up wearing a bikini to work, you know, if you have, <laughs> having to f- go along with them. But part of it is to sort of to, to learn about them. You know, it's like as you learn about anyone, but hard with hard with family, isn't it? Really hard family, people closest to us. What's the main concept that comes to mind when we're around loved ones? It's my my child my mom, my dad. There's a reason why when we say, you know, if you feel like you've gotten enlightened and if you did on this retreat, well done. Um, <laughs> but if you, you know, but anyways, sometimes we feel, I feel really free. And then oftentimes the teachers will say, so go home, wherever that is, meaning go home, go be with some people that, you know, are really close to you. Because why? Why is that? There's so many ideas. Wants, expectations, attachments, views. And in a way, without even you really realizing it, I potentially at times on retreat, we haven't talked too much about this, but one of the fundamental parts of being on on the path is right view. Having the right view in the mind means we see things through the lens of this is a set of conditions, this person, this situation. So we're going from the personalizing it, I, mine, my, to it's like this, it's like this. And it's when we're with each other like this, and you know, people have talked about this, which is stand around and you look at each other and there's this opening of, oh, you're just like this. And then there's this being that's sensitive and open. But as soon as we start to know someone well, and right immediately our ideas and expectations come in, which is why it's actually very difficult to really have a wisdom mind that's operating or a compassion mind, patient, patient mind when we're around really loved ones because we know them so well and we have so many ideas and desires for them. You know, and so I, I watched in the beginning so often I wanted my parents to beginning to start practicing how am I going to convince them to start practicing when I had all that practice meant to them was you left med school. 
you want us to practice when the result of that was leaving career? (laughs) Now that it's on like Time Magazine and, you know, mindfulness is showing up everywhere. And now now it's easier for me to say, hey, you know, might give this a try. Um, But anyways, the right conditions, you know, so... I want to ask you a question about that because what I've found is that um, I agree. I think we're hardest on those we're closest to. And I've found the, that my practice has unraveled that a lot. Yeah. I've softened so I have so much more acceptance, so much more tolerance. Like, okay, I'm not a superhero, but I kind of don't get mad anymore. Seriously. I mean, at the people I love, like my family. <laughs> There's other stuff that, you know. Yeah, if you inju- get- injustice pisses me off. Yeah. But like at, the, at those people, yeah. something is transformed in me yeah. for real, you know, in a big way. Um, so that's hopeful, right? Yeah, because I, I was super critical of everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm very judgmental. And uh, I've noticed like, you just even in the last five, ten years, you know, five, between five and ten years is a big span, but you know, like five ish years that that shifted so mm-hmm. much. Yeah. And I think that's that's the measure in a way. It's not what we're doing. I mean, a cushion is, is supportive for our practice, but it is going to really be measured. How are we with our family, our friends mm-hmm. in the world, with people we don't know, difficult, trying circumstances? How does the mind respond mm-hmm. today? Wherever one is in one's views, there's a there's just an overwhelming amount of uh, kind of we're being barraged nonstop by the world. Right? The news is like we're hooked up twenty four seven to opinions and views and suffering, and we're we're up you know kind of making visible so much of what is actually pretty ugly. So how do we take that in and not? not take that defilement and turn it into our own. This is one of the things that I th- think happens when we're not present and mindful. Someone else's anger actually then becomes our anger. And the, this, this is what the Buddha was saying is war or hatred leads to more hatred. So war and conflict cannot be stopped with more war and conflict because the root is, is in the state of mind. Right? So we really need to understand that and look deeply. And when we do, then when you see something that's unskillful, rather than it, you know, confusing the mind and getting us narrowed and tunnel visioned, actually opens up compassion, which is very broad. Mm-hmm. And compassion then becomes a verb. It's not just this sedate thing. It's you see suffering and there's action. What can I do? And if you're clear and feeling love and kindness, you can do so much. But actually anger, and you can see this in the mind, those around grasping, you're, you're saying the craving, any kind of defilement narrows the mind. And that just wants the thing. Wholesome states of mind, wisdom, kindness, compassion, really spacious. They see a really broad picture, can act skillfully. So when you feel the mind narrowing, it's some, some habit is coming in. And it happens with everything. If you just track the mind like that, is it, open, taking in a lot, or is it kind of, and then the expectation is rooted in some sort of, we say a defilement, when it wants the result, 
wisdom and love just knows what conditions to put in and you do whatever you can and understands if, if the conditions are there, the results will follow. If not, then there's the equanimity knowing this didn't follow, right? So even though we may let go of all the expectations, we're not all going to give birth, right, to, to a child. I can, I can let go of all the expectations I want in the world and I'm not going to give birth. <laughs> but it's just sort of playing. But, you know, the, we, wanna, we do want to know that um, it is because all the conditions are there when something happens. And sometimes our own being in touch with what we really want and distinguishing that from grasping and wanting is, oh, this just really resonates with me. I'm moved by that. Yeah. Maybe way back. Oh, oh sorry. Yes. Uh, this is my... Can you, yeah, we go. Uh, this is my first retreat. Thank you again for a powerful experience. Um, my question is about the, the concept of the uh, illusion of the self and how I think as Americans especially uh, sort of is anathema to everything that we're taught to believe in terms of individuality. How do you explain that concept to people that don't practice in a way that doesn't elicit uh, jeers or, or sneers uh, to the best of your ability? Um, you don't. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, one, Buddhists don't make good evangelists. You know, like, um, yeah, again, it's it's almost the same thing. It's a, a couple things. One, I notice people respond, um, to me in ways that I respond to them, right? So it's really, it's easy for us to want other people to change so that our lives can be easier, right? So it's like, can you please change so that I don't have to feel this anymore, right? And so a lot of times, um, yeah, we're wanting that condition, that condition, that person, that external experience to change, because this starts to hurt. There's James Baldwin. I'm going to quote a black man now. <laughs> he uh, he sort of ta- he talks about how um, you know we, I'm again I'm paraphrasing, but how we hold on to our hatred so strongly because we're afraid if we put it down, we're going to actually have to feel our pain because that's what's lying underneath so it's this sort of thing it's like people if we just if we look at others as as an object and how objects can elicit or we think the object is eliciting an experience a a a pain a feeling of anger a sadness a lust whatever it is this is the experience that we're having and this object happens to be in front of us creating this sensation or this arising Right, so I'm going like over here to come back to here, but the point being um, how we show up in the world and how people experience us, I really feel like has a 
has an impact um, on how they then treat us. Um, I think that even if we say or suggest to somebody, you really need to be more mindful, <laughs> it can, can feel incredibly um, uh, yeah, like we're wanting them to change for us. I had, a, I had a friend tell me a story about how he got angry and he was pissed off about something and someone said to him, well, that's not very Buddhist of you. <laughs> and he said, well, if I wasn't a Buddhist, I'd actually hurt you right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? So... Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make light of your question, but it really is that, it, because we can look at one person or we can, or, or we can look at the world, and, and most of the teaching points to change, what, what can we control and what can't we control. And this path that, that um, Alexis was pointing to is, is really pointing to part of what we can't control is other people external circumstances what we can control is how we our ethics our mindfulness our way of being our way of seeing um and then when those two meet uh you know it's an interesting conversation but um i hear you and i think that's a lot i think that is a lot of pain and suffering for a lot of people is wanting people we care about and love to understand or to get it or live this way too and I think, you know, being the example is, is one of the best ways. Mm. Do you have a follow-up um, to that? I mean, it's, I'll just say it's natural to want to share, as sort of John is saying, um, and it seems like maybe what you're pointing to is like there's this wish to share some of these insights and understandings with people that, that we come across and... Uh, so we'll probably talk a little bit about that tomorrow also. And, you know, part of being mindful or present in the moment is we get better and better at seeing what's appropriate, what's timely. So with right speech, there's a lot of different categories of right speech or definitions or qualities to them. Is timeliness, is it useful, is it kind? Um, is it true? So when you're present, there may be a lot of things that are there, but it might not be the right time. It may not be useful for that person at that moment, maybe something else. And I think part of what has happened, for example, with me and my relationship, and it sounds like with Joanna and her family, is I was not actually coming from my own desires to, to, to put something there or to say something, but more and more seeing what is here and present. Um, and, and that just enables a, a more uh, connected relationship of what's happening. Um, and if you want to get into a discussion of how do you actually teach not-self, then we can talk about that, and I'd be happy to do that kind of later, uh, if you want to really go into that part of it. So... Was there someone on the bench the wall? Okay. 
Hey, thank you so much. Um, I had a question about assertiveness and mindfulness and the interplay between the two, if there is any. Um, for example, um, working with somebody who is very assertive, um, where it feels like sometimes the mindfulness part is all about listening and taking in and and really hearing what the other person has to say. But if they're not offering that, um, you know, where where can mindfulness come in to make that a good working relationship where it's not just um, somebody approaching it with mindfulness who's constantly getting shut down? Is that... I'll just start in with something and see if Joanna has... Um, yeah, I think mindfulness can seem as if it's very passive in some ways, like it's, I'm not going to do anything, or... Um, like, to me, being more and more uh, able to be clear and present, and also learning about my own conditions around not taking up enough space or kind of muffling my voice, which I had spent the first 40 years of my life doing that. So I could then see, well, what, what am I adding into this that is limiting my ability to express myself and actually be skillfully here? And one of the things that the Buddha actually said around right speech is not just refraining from what shouldn't be said, but actually saying what should. And he scolded the monks and nuns and other beings around him when they missed an opportunity to skillfully help someone. He said, it is your role to do this and say this. Because oftentimes we think, oh, right speech is to just sort of refrain. Actually, it's to be proactive, kind of what you're pointing to is how do you then say something skillfully? And again, when we're, when we're present, we're going to see the situation, see a lot of different perspectives. And maybe later we learn, you know, we see more points of view and we keep bringing that wisdom again and again to situations. And that's going to be the measure, like how are we in our workplace, in our communities, the different environments we keep showing up in, are we becoming more skilled? in being there, right? Or do we just get kind of overwhelmed and lost in, in the circumstances or reactive or somehow shrinking away? And, but if you're watching that shrinking and watching different things, we actually can learn, okay, this is what, and you try it out and there's gonna be a lot. It's, most of it's gonna be trial and error, you know, and falling over and getting up and get, falling over. And you keep trying, you keep trying, right? Thank you. So I have a question about Buddhism and sexual expression, sexuality. Um, It's, I'm, I'm wondering, is there a cohesiveness to it? Uh, can you be a sexual being? You can, but um, <laughs> what is the delicate balance if you don't want to be a monk? Um, I think our time's yeah. up. I think our time's up. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, there's always avoidance. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's a really good and important question. And what I what one of the things because I've delved into this a lot. I've taught a lot about it, and I've thought a lot about it. Um, and the pre- the third precept has really been is a beautiful framework to work within, um, because there's a lot of there's a lot of spaciousness. So the third precept is the one around being wise and careful with our sexuality. There's a lot of spaciousness in that, and when we break it down, there's there's really like eight things not to do. Um, animals. Um, children so how it's worded is um, any young person still living with their family Um, overindulgence Um, harassment attack, harm, rape seeing if I can remember all of these Uh, so there's those who live with their parents. Oh, anyone that's in a relationship, a committed relationship. I know there's three more. So so it doesn't matter. But um, it, I mean, it matters. I'm not saying that. They're they're like they're so obvious. Like they're 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 like very obvious harms. I'm just like I'm forgetting the the details. But so the to dos are. Um, Two, well, I won't say two, <laughs> consenting adults. And then as long as you're not causing harm. So where we're not causing harm. So that's kind of, there's a lot of space in that. But now looking at the word consent is, is changing, right? So this is an evolving thing to look at. So two, I keep saying two consenting adults because there's no, it doesn't say a number. <laughs> it's like consenting adults. Um, Consent is a, is a really big deal now, and consent changes, and it's really important to stay in contact with what consent is. But there's a lot of spaciousness in the third precept around just not causing harm to another person, not causing harm to ourselves, right? And then really, are we viewing our sexual relationship without greed or aversion or delusion? So are we using somebody else? Are we feeling insecure? Are we bored? So sex is the answer. Are we overpowering or um, being aggressive? Right? Do we know we don't really care about somebody, but we're horny, so we're going to use them and maybe lie? You know. So there's all these ways um, to look at it. So it's a one of the things I love about the wording of the precepts is that it's really asking us to look at how we are causing harm and especially around that around that precept. So that's been a really important guideline for me, you know, before I was in a committed relationship to um where I was causing harm to myself or somebody else. And if we're really honest with each other because casual relationships fit in that, you know, casual sex fits in those parameters, but then how long does casual go on before somebody is harmed or before somebody starts having, 
you know. So it's it's really an important exploration, and I'm I'm glad you asked. And I don't know if that was helpful or not. I could go on it for hours because I teach like five week programs on it. Um, online. Online. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's it's juicy and it's important, um, and it's a good inquiry. So thanks for asking. Yeah, I don't have much to add. It's just lovely. And as Joanna was saying, I just I think that framework of not causing harm, it's it's just such a perfect container to explore something like that that is so innate and natural. And yet if you're not holding that particular reflection, you can see how easily, because it's a very powerful energy, you know, it's so easy then to go in directions that become habitual, addictive, and then it is causing oneself harm. It is causing harm to others, right? And that's so that that reflection can get more and more refined as as we go along. And even our practice in general with precepts, you know, one analogy is if you put a grain of sand in your hand, you can feel it, a certain amount of texture that's there. And as you get more and more sensitive, it's as if you were to take that grain of sand and put it in your, you know, in your eye. So sensitive. So without even trying in some ways, this is why the precepts themselves can be a whole path because as you follow them, the joy that it brings of not causing harm, of being a safe being for all beings around you, it really brightens your mind and heart. So you don't go, you're not going to bed with regret and remorse. Because a lot of times when we first start sitting, there's so much stuff that starts to surface. It's life review. So many things that we could have done, should have done, right, differently. And as the mind continues, we get heart continues to be with our experiences, there's a settling. We're not acting out as much, even if it's just slightly less, slightly less. And this path continues, continues to unfold. And the forgiveness in the past really starts to rise because we see why things happened. They still caused harm to myself and others, but we see why they happened. All those conditions were there of confusion, of overwhelm, desire, aversion. Oh, that's why that happened, either in me or in someone else. So these practices really, really have this powerful kind of freeing capacity both now and also in the, the storage of things that we carry. So with that, um, we're going to move into just a, well, enough of a compassion practice uh, together. So we'll kind of close out a guided period.
if you haven't already done so, just continue to check in with your experience. Allowing and acknowledging whatever energies or movements of the mind and heart that are present. At the end of the day, you might explore this tonight as you get in bed, but we'll do this together right now. But at the end of the day, some of these practices that are a bit more inclining the heart towards what we call the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, be a peaceful way of moving into sleep, closing out a day. And so if you'd like, you can bring your attention to your heart center. Place a hand there that's meaningful to you holding your body. Knowing this heart has the capacity to feel. Say that compassion is the movement that happens when we come close to suffering. So you might bring to mind an image being of a little person or big person or an animal in the past or now that you have felt some care for. Maybe a moment of their being afraid or struggling. Maybe yourself as a child the moment that you were afraid. One way into compassion is recognizing that we don't want to cause harm. We don't want to add cruelty to the moment.
in the heart center, just feeling either may I be held in compassion Or may your pain and ease, pain and sorrow be eased. You might feel the compassion as if it were some embers in the heart that are beginning to glow from this wish of not causing ill will or cruelty, just letting them become brighter. So whatever's there, whether some compassion can be felt or even just remembering that compassion is a possibility, allowing it to begin to radiate outwards. Like a lamp shining out the natural radiance of the heart when there's this movement of compassion that's there, simply allowing it to radiate. May beings be free from suffering. I have no intention to add to the harm and cruelty of this world.
whatever well-wishing is there in the heart. Allowing it to radiate, opening forward in front, like a lamp shining forward. Offering compassion And to the right, to the beings, to the right. And behind, to the left. above, and below, allowing this well-wishing to radiate outward from the heart in all directions, just freely offering whatever non-ill will, sense of kindness, care. When this wishing is present in the heart, it's also known as a temporary liberation of the mind, temporarily liberated from anger and ill will. This is our So as this is our last night together, I allow you to continue to practice in this way. If you want to continue offering radiating kindness,
and we'll have a final sitting in about 30 minutes. So at 9.10, we'll come back. It's 8.40 right now, but if you wish to just continue with a little bit more practice, please continue. And we'll have a bell ringer uh, ring the bell at the appropriate time. And I'll just add that the conditions don't always come together to be on retreat. So if you have energy now that you've been here for these two days, um, make use of it. You know, if you have, don't think about the time. We have the rest of life to think about time. Here we can be a little bit in the timeless realm, even though some of you have to get up at nine in the morning on Monday or be at work at nine. But here it's like the energy, uh, just to make use of it because there's some momentum sometimes that comes on retreat. So if you have that and it feels natural to you, please take advantage. Uh, Otherwise we'll see you back here and we'll offer just a a shorter sitting and some closing uh, comments for the night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.